Here we go, June the 1st, 2014, lecture discussion number 157 on the Book of Romans. And uh, when we last met, that would have been May the 18th, which would have been lecture number 156. See how good at math I am. I put uh, Genesis 32, uh, 22 through 32 on this on the board, this big list of mine right here. And there it is. And we went about working our way through it. Mostly we dealt with the conversation between um, heel holder and God as they wrestle and discuss the uh, implications of that wrestling and the blessing and all of that. And uh, by now, all of you know that uh, one thing about my lists is always true, and that is, is that we never uh, get through them. I don't think I've ever completed a list in my life, uh, every item that is. I mean, I don't go through every item on the list. I always leave things behind and I don't address them. And people ask me, why don't you go through all the things on your list? And why don't I go through all the things on the list? You have noticed that I don't ever do it, right? I assume that you have. And the answer, yeah, if I heard somebody say it correctly, it's because we can't stand to go through all the items on the list. It's, it's monotonous and, and uh, difficult. There's only so much we can deal with around here. And uh, so my lists uh, uh, fall down uh, the cracks, if you will. And some of you have pleaded to me. You've come up to me and you've said, uh, uh, no more lists. Please don't do any more lists. I've had people tell me, I don't come here to see you put a list on the board. And I know there's a petition drive uh, to abolish all lists and some of uh, some chant during the, uh, the middle of the lecture. And that brings up my problem, because for all of you that don't like the lists, and I, I value your opinion, what do we have? Yeah, that's right. We have the opposing view. We have the list makers. There are lots of list makers in this world. And what, what do the list makers do? They run things. That's right. And they're in control. They've got their little list, and off they go. So I have to deal with the list makers. They love the lists. They are the lovers of the lists, and they advocate for more and more and longer and longer lists. And so I have this perplexity, this dilemma. I got to straddle the fence between the uh, the list of uh, the fence of list making, if you will. And and this little dance I have to do is not for amateurs because of the alienation factor here. And I have to form an alliance have to affiliate and sympathize, and I go into cahoots with one group or the other. And naturally, how do I resolve that? That's right, I can be bought. And I had had this couple come up, and I want to say, uh, uh, they brought me a bribe. Not specifically about the list, but it just seemed like an opportune time to bring it in. They flew all the way up from California, which is a foreign country, as you know. It requires some kind of, you got to go through customs and have a passport. But they made it all the way to Alaska, and they brought me things that they knew I wanted. And they uh, spent a long, uh, quite a couple of hours, a few hours with me, and we had a great time. Uh, Bob, uh, um, living dog, Bob, and his uh, lovely uh, wife, Shirley. Anyway, here's what they brought me. First thing they brought me, of course. Now, it's from California. I'm not sure that I can open it. 
But uh, for those of you on the internet, they brought me a Diet Coke. I don't know if it's legal to open anything from California and Alaska, is it? I don't know. And then the other thing that they brought me, knowing that I would like it, is Worcestershire sauce. So you think my influence is limited to this small area, but no, no, I reach deep into the bowels of the world for stuff like that. But I also got a letter, and I thought I would read that today um, so that you can understand why I do these lists. Dear Pastor Chronister, or whoever reads his emails, I love that part, I have a new job now. I thoroughly enjoy it uh, from Deborah, I should say that. Deborah, uh, where is she from? Uh, San Diego. Deborah from San Diego. Dear Pastor Chronister, or whoever reads his emails, I thoroughly enjoy your sermons. I recently began listening via sermon audio. So, Dave, there we go again, another person from sermon audio. Then discovered your website and received your podcast. So, Catherine, that's the process. That's how it's flowing all the time. You have, and same for Kurt and Ben. This is how we do it here. I want them to know that because sometimes it gets to be difficult to keep all of that up. But uh, here's uh, someone who is appreciating us. You have truly opened my eyes to Scripture. I've been a Christian for 46 years and never heard of patterns, explanations of the mysteries, or how the Hebrew betrothal ceremony relates to Scripture and our understanding of God's holy word. I can't thank you enough for opening my mind to God's precious wisdom. I was wondering if you had a list. Isn't that great? (laughs) I was wondering if you had a list of the patterns and mysteries that could be emailed to me. It is very, it is difficult to take notes from a whiteboard that is invisible to your listeners. Yes, uh, Deborah, we know that. That's half the reason we do it. Um, I hope someday to visit your church. Oh, no. (laughs) We have to hide. Um, With my family and see the whiteboard. Again, it's not just the Worcestershire sauce that is out there. it's the highest and most holy uh, dry erase board. The platinum that rotates. It does all kinds of cool things. And see the whiteboard. And you. Uh, for myself. In other words, they're not really sure we exist. And we can appreciate that kind of skepticism. I'm trying to think of a way to get our adult son, daughter-in-law to join us. But until then, I continue to listen to two or three sermons a day. Yes. We must all groan for her. Have you considered DVDs? I continue to pray for your, I, I will continue to pray for your continued help. See, everybody, it was Becky the other day, uh, came up to me and said, you look terrible. She, <laughs> pale, that's what you said, I look pale. That's all true. Uh, but I make these jokes and they go everywhere and it's just, uh, they worried about me because of my habits. I promise you, Deborah, I only ate 15 or 20 Reese's peanut butter cups before the sermon today. I've cut it way back. I will continue to pray for your continued health and increasing wisdom. Uh, what you are teaching is so needed in the churches today. Blessings on your day. P.S. If you are and yours are ever in San Diego area, please feel free to call. So all of us are free to call if we're ever going to San Diego. That'll be cool. My husband would love to take you fishing. Yeah, well, trust me, Deborah. We understand fishing up here in Alaska. Uh, we'll be, uh, we'll, we would love to go to San Diego. I would, I know. So, next church field trip, we're going to visit Deborah and her husband and go fishing in San Diego. 
Maybe that's not what she intended there. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's great to hear from her. And I just wanted you to know, uh, to, to, um, to say this, we are working, uh, Pat, TJ, and I are working on trying to get a DVD, uh, YouTube uh, streaming uh, video system up and operating. As you know, it, uh, it isn't um, something that is easy to do. It, you can do it cheaply. But that wouldn't be very helpful. So we're in the process of putting together a list to see what we can buy, how much it'll take, and all of that. So that's on the on the docket, and we're headed that direction. We had a, a, a discussion about it actually just yesterday. So uh, keep all of that in mind. Anyway, as per usual, last week I just threw a whole lot of stuff in the air and um, and walked away. Uh, which is my tried and true usual teaching method. So uh, now it's time to deal with the uh, falling debris. I can't say this enough. The Bible, how it is written, and Bill uh, alluded to it, it's, it's magnificent how it is put together. And, and that should give you tremendous comfort. Once you recognize just who wrote this and how he wrote it, and how it all meshes together, then you know that it is the solution that we hope for. It is the one promise that we can count on. Uh, No one can do this. So I like to say understanding how the Bible is written is almost as important as why it was written. It's almost like a... Uh, a popcorn trail or a treasure hunt or whatever you want it to be. He's trying to lead you to certain things. And when you find one, you move along and you find the other one. There's never, it's never by itself. There's always something connected to it immediately that is fantastic. That I, I try to illustrate it. I don't think I accomplish it. But that the typological studies we do, the complements in the Old Testament and the New Testament, once you get a hold of it, you understand, okay, I'm not going to cease to exist. I'm not going to perish. I really am going to live forever. And so are my, so is my family and, and my friends. And so I, I, I can't say it any better than I do. This magnificent typology that is in the Bible, and particularly here, because this is the subject we're on, Jacob and Esau, is amazing where you go. Once you start with Jacob and Esau, how you take off and find all these other things that connect to it is, is astonishing. Uh, to say it more accurately, as I said last week, it's a very good idea to begin to not call him Jacob, but call him by what his name really means. It means heel holder. So when you see Jacob, just say heel holder. And when you see Esau, say uh, hairy red. So I have two guys, and their name is Harry Red and Heel Holder. Eventually, Heel Holder is renamed by God to be Struggler with me, or Struggler with God, the one who contends with me. And that helps you understand the names are very important, the meanings of the names. Start teaching yourself to call them what the names mean. And as you know, Harry Red, he rejects the blessing. He rejects salvation. Even when he's on the precipice, on the brink of his own death, he rejects salvation. I'm about to die. I reject the blessing. That's what he did. 
And then eventually he responds, Harry Red does, he's going to kill heel holder. He's going after him. But then at the end of Genesis 33-4, if you've been here the last few weeks, if you haven't, this will be very important. Harry Red is almost word for word. So I got this guy that rejects salvation. He's going to kill heel holder. But at, at the end of the story, essentially, Genesis 33-4, Harry Red is almost word for word exactly as the father in the parable of the two sons. Notice how I say that, Luke 15-20. I don't call it the prodigal son when I do it correctly. I want you to know it's two sons. Because why? Because this is all about two sons. Two sons, two sons, two sons. It's the parable of the two sons. Don't focus just on the younger son. Always pay attention to the older son. There's two in the story. They're equal, if you will. They have equal billing. I don't have the... The prodigal son is a misnomer. I've said that many times over the years. I use it because I have to. It's how people know it. But it really is about both sons. And at the end of the two-son story, that is Jacob Esau, heel holder and Harry Red. At the end of that, I have Harry Red word for word exactly like the father in the parable of the two sons. And in the parable of the two sons, Luke 15, 20, the father is who? Who is the father in that parable? That's God himself. So Harry Red, the one who rejects salvation, the one who seeks to kill his brother, is God himself. In that position, representative. In fact, Harry Red is is called. Jacob, heel holder, calls Esau Harry Red. He calls him the face of God. So Esau is in fact called the face of God. And Harry Red is the face of God, filled with compassion, love, and mercy in Genesis 33. 33-4 specifically. And not knowing that, not knowing that Esau is so described in Scripture, is if you don't know that, you're without a, without a key, critical piece of information to what Esau's representation is, his typology, if you will. It's a very complicated meaning, and everyone um, is mistaken because they do not see that Luke, that Luke 15 connection to Esau. And that's what I mean by popcorn trail. You're reading Esau, you've got to find Luke 15. And if you do, boom, everything opens up for you. See, isn't that a modern way of saying things? Did I say boom correctly? You have to hold your hands right to say boom. I do my best to be current. Okay, I don't do anything at all to be current. It's impossible for me to care about, to care less about being current. Embracing old. When Jesus Christ himself, because that's Jesus Christ himself, that's God, the word made flesh, that is omnipotent creator God, at Luke 15, 11 through 32, uses the language of Genesis 33, 4. That's the description of Esau is now in the parable of the two sons. God is still doing it. Here's what he says. But when he, the younger son. So he's talking about the younger son, Luke 15, 11 through 32. God is. But when he, the younger son, was still a great way off, 
How far is a great way? Can you see him? His father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. So we have this ran. I don't have a lot of room here. We have this ran, fell, kissed. Triad, if you will. It's word for word what Esau did in Genesis 33-4. Word for word. So there's no question that Esau and the parable of the two sons are connected. And by the way, who's listening to the parable of the two sons? The Pharisees are. And they're very well aware that he is quoting Genesis 33-4. They're very well aware that now we're, we're going to learn something about Esau, or Harry Red, if you will. The Pharisees recognize the ran fell kissed. This is not something that they don't teach. They teach it all the time. We're the ones that don't know it. They know ran fell kissed. And instantly, as soon as they heard it, they would know that it was a description of Esau. And as an aside, by the way, when they're listening to the parable, they're already aware the Pharisees are that they're in the parable and they know who they are. They know they're the older son. And they would also know who the father was and who the younger son was. In other words, everybody that was there knew that everybody that was there knew. Does that make sense? But what I want you to do is always, when you're reading about Esau, especially at Genesis 33-4, connect it to Luke 15-20. I can't emphasize that enough, the importance of Luke 15-20 and Genesis 33-4. Once you make that connection, the Bible begins to reveal things to you. It's like opening the the present or the whatever, the flower blooms. I say all the time, George Washington Carver. I, I just have so much respect for George Washington Carver. Uh, I think he's essential to study, especially uh, today. I, I call him the, the genius of the last 200 years. I know there's a lot of them. George Washington Carver, Niels Bohr, Max Planck, Nikolai Tesla, and obviously Isaac Newton, but Isaac Newton was quite a few years before those guys. But Isaac Newton is extraordinary too, but so George Washington Carver. Anyway, George Washington Carver noted that the, whoever designed the peanut, because he says in his his description of how he got into tearing into the peanut was that he asked God for something significant to do. And God gave him the peanut to investigate. And he noted that whoever designed the peanut, because every time you thought you were done with the peanut, what did you do? You found more things that the peanut could do. The peanut, little tiny peanut could do all the... George Washington Carver, given enough time, obviously could have done anything with the peanut. Just the peanut. And he recognized that whoever made the peanut was the author of the Bible. Because of how the creation and how the Bible is put together. That's why I say figure out how your Bible is written. The unmistakable signature that is is this connectivity and this layered complexity. Everything ultimately interconnects to everything else and the depths are endless. 
And all of it points to God's character, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his creativity, his power, his plan of salvation. Okay? So, here we are. Jacob holds on to Christ. He's wrestling to Christ, with Christ. That's what Genesis 32 is about. Uh, that portion of it, 22 through 32. And Moses, is Exodus 4, uh, 24 through 26, I covered this last week a little bit, is likewise in a life or death struggle with Christ. So I have Jacob doing this wrestling. He's struggling. I have Moses in Exodus 4 struggling. And I have Joshua, who is also confronted by Christ. And by the way, all of it just appears sudden in the, in the Bible. Jacob has sent everybody across. He's sitting there alone. Bang! All of a sudden, he's in a, a wrestling match. It's just immediate in Scripture. Uh, Moses has dealt with all these things. He's on his way to Egypt. All of a sudden, he's in a life and death struggle with Christ. Just immediate in Scripture. There's no lead up to it. There's no explanation. It just appears in Scripture. And Joshua also, this suddenness that's there. It's almost, as I like to describe it, it's like a last minute feel to it. Or it's got to happen before it's too late. It's an emergency. And so obviously... In the coming weeks, we got to put Jacob's wrestling and Moses' struggle to the death over circumcision and Joshua's uh, confrontation. We've got to put those side by side and try to figure out what they mean because they are additive. In other words, they're, you've got to add them together. That's my view of it. You take the piece that is Jacob, you add it to the piece that is Moses, you add it to the piece that is Joshua, and you can figure out what it means. But today we're going to do the comparisons that are Cain and Abel. I said that last week too. I hope you were here. If not, I'll tell you why. Cain and Abel are what? Two sons. Jacob and Esau are what? Two sons. What am I doing? Running around the Bible getting all the two sons. The parable of the two sons in Luke 15. We're going to compare those a little bit today. And obviously, Cain and Abel are twins. Esau and Jacob are what? Twins. So what do I think of the older than the younger son of Luke 15? Twins. So I start by assuming the two sons of Luke 15 are likewise twins, and and we'll make that case. But for today, I just want to pay attention to the conversations because these guys talk to each other. And that's interesting. Jacob and Esau have this red soup, sell the birthright conversation, right? Here, I'm going to die. Sell me your birthright. Jacob knows full well he can't sell the birthright. Sons, you can't sell it. It's not sellable. It's not transferable. There's nothing you can do. Why do we have that conversation? And I explained over the weeks before that at its essence, this conversation is about salvation. If I'm correct, why do I, that hurts to even say that. I have to take some reinforcements now. I should mix my new Worcestershire sauce in to my Diet Coke. That would save time. <laughs> No, you're saying don't do it. Believe it or not, you're going to think I'm completely crazy. 
you already think I'm completely crazy. I I will eat my steak, and there will be a little puddle of Worcestershire sauce left over because I marinate the Worcestershire sauce all over the steak. By the way, you can eat a really bad steak if you have enough Worcestershire sauce. Just a, just a little tip for you people. Uh, but there's always a puddle, and I, I put down the fork, and what do I do? No, I get a spoon. I am not a barbarian. They're saying, lick the plate. No, no, I make sure I have enough that I can get a spoon and I can suck up my Worcestershire sauce. I taught my children this. <laughs> we call that good parenting and where I'm from. If I'm correct, that hurts to say that, um, then Esau has just killed Nimrod before we have this conversation about the red soup and the birthright. So understanding that event leading to the soup event, if you will, very important. Uh, I want you to note that not just Esau has a conversation with Jacob, but that Cain has a conversation with God subsequent to him killing Abel. So I'm starting to pay attention to the order of things in both of these passages. And that that's, by the way, the brother's keeper question. He also has a conversation with God before he kills Abel. That's the fallen countenance conversation. And comparing those these conversations um, between Cain and God and Cain and Abel and Esau and Jacob, I think we're going to find that's going to be critically important. Cain and Abel have a conversation. It's not described. It's Genesis 4.8. It says, now Cain talks with Abel. They walk off. Anyway, before we get there, let's ask a couple of things about, let's assume the premise of Nimrod as the context or the cause the cause and effect, the cause of the effect of the soup conversation. Let's just ask a couple of questions. Esau kills Nimrod. How'd he do it? Did he plan it? Is it premeditated? Or did he just happen upon the king of Babylon who happened to be alone or was not guarded well and he was able to go down and kill the guards, how many there may have been, and kill Nimrod. And why would he do it? Repeat, is it planned, premeditated, or op- op- opportunistic? I submit that uh, he's described as what he saw, as is Nimrod, the only two in all of the Bible described this way. Both of them are cunning, formidable, killing machines, if you will, a cunning hunter. And what does cunning hunters do? What do they do? Do they just kind of happen along and kill somebody? That's just, that doesn't fit the description. I I think it's obvious that I have a great deal of reconnaissance here. I have stalking, tracking, planning, careful, thinking it through. He's going to kill who? The most powerful man on the earth. That's what Esau is going to do the most heavily guarded, and the most powerful. 
powerful in every stretch of the word. And so I think it's obvious that uh, Esau spent a lot of time watching, following, waiting for Demrod to demonstrate a pattern of behavior, because that's what you do. He had to see some kind of predictable event so he could recognize when Nimrod was going to do a certain thing. It is not unlike modern warfare. If you study modern warfare, how this is done, a very high value target, how, how they, these highly trained men in the military on all sides, how they go about that process. It hasn't changed for thousands of years. I don't believe it changed here. I think this is the most likely uh, way that this occurred. It isn't coincidence. It doesn't. It just didn't happen. Again, it doesn't fit with the description of Esau, nor does it explain the motive. See, not only you have to begin to contemplate how he killed Nimrod, but you have to figure out the motive. Why does he kill Nimrod? He's the most powerful man in the world. You kill this man, what's going to happen? They're going to come after you, boy. Not going to be a good day. So you've got to be prepared. So you just don't kill somebody without an exit strategy. Not somebody like this. The whole world, his entire army is coming for you. And any study of Nimrod will tell you that he had an elite military operation. And yet Nimrod hunted him down and killed him. So, again, conceding the premise that Esau murdered Nimrod. And by the way, that's the traditional, the most ancient position. You study the ancient commentaries, and some people get mad at me for bringing up commentaries that are non-biblical sources, and I understand that. Um, but if, if, I had, if this historical position... The ancient Jewish position is correct that Nimrod killed, was killed by Esau prior to Esau walking into whatever room that was, tent or whatever, where he had this conversation with Jacob over the soup and the birthright. If that's what we have going on, and if he's wounded, and the traditional view says this, by the way, that uh, there was at least two guards there. He had to kill both guards before he was able to kill Nimrod. So one man comes down and kills three. Now, what's the motive? But if, if that's true, by the way, let me back up a second, then I've got to find that historical position that's considered historical. I've got to find that position somewhere in the Genesis account. There will be traces of it. And the oral, just to jump ahead here because I've got to watch my time, the oral Jewish explanation is that Nimrod was murdered for something. He had possession of something and Esau intended to take it. And that was these garments. He had garments. and Priest garments, they're described. And we'll get into what they could be. To be more specific, um, the, it is said that the Esau's motive, his intention was to go and steal those garments. It is possible that he thought he could get those garments without having to kill Nimrod. But apparently that did not occur. It may be just the opposite, that he knew the only way he could get the garments was to kill Nimrod 
and to kill those who were immediately beside him because the chances that Nimrod is alone, very, very poor. Not a man like this. He, many people would be hunting Nimrod. But Esau's intention, that was the motive, apparently, the historical oral tradition says, was to steal the garments of Nimrod. And if this tradition has any merit, uh, then again, i got to find traces of it. If, if, I have to, if it can be defended, then traces of it are going to be in Scripture somewhere. Therefore, the question then becomes this. At the selling of the birthright, where Jacob asks Esau for an oath, where Esau is exhausted, probably wounded, and anticipating that he was going to die imminently, he's expecting an imminent death. Why? He's being hunted now, isn't he? Does Esau, during that meeting with Jacob, does Esau have those garments? Does he walk into the room and there he lays down the garments of of Nimrod? And by the way, would Jacob know what those garments were? I think he would. If Esau brings the garments in, then that would explain immediately why Jacob would ask him about the blessing. Because the garments and the blessing become contrasted. As soon as Jacob sees the garments, the right thing to discuss now is the blessing. I hope that makes sense. I hope it does soon. You see, is it not logical that Esau would have, by the way, told people of his plans to steal those garments? Is he operating solely in a vacuum? Or would he say to people, does he need help? He certainly needs help if what? If he succeeds, he's got to, again, have a place that he can go to. What's the point of taking the garments if you can't defend them? You can't survive it. He's what? He is a cunning, powerful, killing man. Notice my re-emphasis on the word cunning. He's thought this through. He's not just bullying his way in there, kills a guy, happens to find a couple of garments. It's not what happened. doesn't make sense. So he's running back. He's on the move. And he knows he's being chased. Did he talk to anybody? Well, certainly he would have talked to somebody. He needs a support system. Would he have talked to Jacob about it? Who's his what? Twin brother. Does he talk to his twin brother about his plan to kill the most powerful man in the world and steal his priest garment? Here's how I'm going to do it. I've been following him for six months. Every, every third Friday, uh, if it's a sunny day, he takes two guards and walks this path. That's my place. That's when I'm going to get him. The guards are walking in this formation. They're going at this pace. I can take the one on the rear this way. I can take the second one this way. If I'm not wounded, I have a chance to take Nimrod, who is likewise 
a killing machine. And so does Christ. Does he talk to his brother about it? How many did he tell of his plan to steal these garments? And by the way, does does everybody in that area know about the garments of Nimrod? Yes. Everybody knows. It would be like, what would be the equivalent? Uh, I have to think of something that would be the equivalent if you stole it. Something that's so like the Liberty Bell. If you brought the Liberty Bell in here and put it on stage, everyone in the room would know what it was. Well, I got modern public education. Now. Maybe that's not true. I have to reconsider that. I have to think of something from a movie, I guess, or maybe from, yeah, the Heisman Trophy. Yeah, we've got to think of something from book facing. But some, yeah, somebody. I certainly wouldn't be the U.S. Constitution. Uh, never mind. I got to move on. Got to move on. Nobody would know what that was. Uh, but everyone knew that this was the gar- as soon as they saw them, they knew it was the garments of Nimrod. He's the most famous, most powerful man in the world at the time, and and there's legendary stuff about these garments, and everyone would know that Nimrod had had this great treasure, and the only way he could get it would be to kill... I'm sorry, that Esau had this great treasure, and the only way he could get it would be to kill Nimrod. And if Esau did have them, then he immediately becomes what? He's trans, trans, uh, he's transformed into what? He's the killer of Nimrod. That all by itself. He has the garments of Nimrod. Who is he now? What did he just say he is? I have killed the most powerful man and I have his garments. So I am the most powerful man. He would immediately be a revered man and also simultaneously he would be a hunted fugitive. Okay, so let's recap all of that information a little bit. Jacob and Esau have a discussion over the blessing, over salvation. A conversation that occurs after the killing of Nimrod, a murder. Cain is a tiller of ground. Abel is a keeper of sheep. Cain's offering of work salvation, bloodless salvation, because that's what he did. Cain brings a bloodless salvation. If it's bloodless, then it's Christless. Does that make sense? There's no Christ in it. Christ is the blood in offerings, in salvation. If you don't have blood, you don't have Christ. And as soon as he put his Christless salvation on the altar, it is what? Rejected by God. In fact, by the way, so you know, 1 John 3.12 declares Cain's offering as evil. It says it's evil. You bring a bloodless, Christless offering, it's evil. Whereas Abel brought a blood offering, a blood-based, grace-based, Christ-based salvation offering, and that by is declared, uh, in contrast to Cain, is de- declared to be a righteous offering. Again, First John 3.12. I seem like I've changed subjects, haven't I? But I haven't. The offering of Cain is the absolute opposite to the offering of Abel. They are pure Total, complete opposites. You cannot get any further from what Abel brought than what Cain brought. That again, Romans 4, 1 through 12. 
The works of man is the complete opposite of believing God for salvation. What God says is required for salvation is called believing God. When you believe that, you're believing God. If you don't believe that, then you're on the Cain side, the works side. Works of man is the complete opposite of believing God. And God himself now, after he has rejected Cain's bloodless, Christless offering, he cries out to Cain and he says, Why are you angry? Because when he rejected it, Cain became angry. What's the obvious question? Why did Cain become angry? That's what God asked him. Here's an example where God asks the obvious question. Did Cain expect that that offering would be taken? He got angry when it wasn't. Did he expect it would be taken? That God would accept his bloodless, Christless offering that is a picture of salvation. If you bring to God, personalize it, you bring to God a bloodless, Christless offering, do you expect he will take it? I will help you. He won't take it, ever. Not going to happen. What is, by the way, now see, I say by the way way too much. I also say, if you will, way too much. For those of you on the internet who are counting me, I appreciate it very much. Not really. <laughs> but you're nonetheless right. And I have a wonderful lady says, I, d- Dear Mr. Cronster, I, I can tell when you have deviated from your written scripts. And I wrote her back. Thank you. I always deviate from my written scripts. Here's an example of it right now. (laughs) It is obvious to me that Cain thought this bloodless salvation offering would be accepted by God. What would possibly make him think that? He had to think that he didn't need to offer blood-based salvation. He didn't need to accept Christ's blood to be saved. What would possibly make him think that? He had to assume that he is not subject to death. What would possibly make him think that? He had to think That he had no sin. Are there people stupid enough in this world who think they have no sin? Oh yeah. They're running churches all over the place. Have they convinced people that they have no sin? Oh yeah. They have big churches. Part of the reason that we have such a small operation here is because I have failed to convince anyone in my entire life that I am sinless, of which I am proud of that, sort of. But obviously Cain, that was a joke, those people on the internet, that's a joke, hang in there. Um, This is also not in a vacuum. Cain just didn't all of a sudden decide, today's the day I'm going to put an offering like this on the table. He planned it. He told people about it. 
So you ask the question, how many are watching this event? How many had Cain convinced that when he put this offering out here that God would accept it? How many were on Cain's side? How did the betting go? What the book? It is always a bookmaker in every family. Uh, how did it go down here? What's the odds? I'm going to say to you that overwhelmingly everybody thought Cain's offering would be accepted. One guy didn't. Abel. The other brother. God himself calls out to Cain when it's not accepted. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, what's he mean by that? Go and get a blood offering. If you go and get a blood offering, will you not be saved? That's what God says to him. Not be accepted. Or rephrase it. If you believe me, if you believe God, if you believe that salvation is grace-based, it requires blood, requires sacrifice, requires substitutionality. If you believe that, if you demonstrate that, By bringing the blood offering, will you not be saved? That's a rhetorical question that implies the answer is yes, you will be saved. Accepted by God. Does Cain do that? No. What's he do instead? You read it? He talks with Abel. So again, I now have the older brother talking with the younger brother, and they're talking about what? The same thing that Jacob and Esau talked about. What are they talking about again? Salvation. Cain talks to Abel instead of resubmitting the correct offering. Why does he do that? Why doesn't Cain just go get the blood offering, bring it back, put it on? He'll be saved exactly as God. It'll be accepted exactly as God said. But he doesn't do it. Angry. And what's his plan? You get a hint when he goes to talk to his brother. Can't, I need to ask this again. Who is watching Cain? Who, how many sees the rejected offering? Who, how many sees the response of Cain? Everybody that's there. How many is that? That's a lot. Who are they? And that's the point of this. This was a major event. Cain had planned it. His bloodless offering would be submitted and everyone would watch. And everyone would see. And everyone did see. And what they saw was Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. Not what Cain thought would happen. He thought Abel's would be accepted because it's always been that way. This isn't the first offering time. These are men. So again, what was Cain's motive? I want you to consider that. Now, Cain doesn't do what God asks him to do. He talks with Abel. Genesis 4.8, obvious question. What's the reason for this talk? What are they talking about? 
Again, he did not resubmit his offering. And now Cain and Abel are talking in the field. What are they talking? Are they negotiating? Is it a negotiation just like it was with Jacob and Esau? If so, what's on the table? What were Jacob and Esau negotiating over? Esau's got the priest garments of the king of the dead king of Babylon. And Jacob asked him, sell me your birthright for a bowl of soup. Okay. I'm going to die anyway. I got these garments now, baby. I don't need this other birthright at all. I got something over here. Just to give you a hint where we're going to end up going eventually. What we're going to talk about. Is Cain and Abel negotiating? Is it the same thing? Who's in the strongest position? What's at stake? By the way, just 12 verses before this event is what? Garments. Two garments have been made by God. Just 12 verses before we have Cain and Abel negotiating in the woods. God made them. They're placed on Adam and Eve. And once again, all these ingredients, if you, I can't say that. All these ingredients are present. Two sons, garments, salvation as the central issue. The older son has been rejected. The older son is angry. He has murderous intent. He's going to be hunted down and he'll be a fugitive. That's exactly, that sounds like Jacob and Esau, but that's Cain and Abel. One son has complete understanding of God's method of salvation. The other is totally wrong and can't be more wrong. Cain and Abel, Jacob, Esau. Now I want to remind you of Luke 15, 11 through 32. Now look at my time here. Got to hustle. God himself is telling the parable of the two sons. This is God doing this. The older son and the younger son. And once again, the younger son has a perfect understanding of salvation. If you read it, I don't have time. We'll read it next week. Luke 15, 18 through 19. He says, I have sinned. I am not worthy. He has a perfect understanding of now how to be saved. And the older son is outright totally wrong. He's saying things like he's never committed a single sin at any time. He hasn't broken a commandment of God at any time. Luke 15, 28 through 29. I've never sinned, he says. I'm connecting that back to where? Cain. So the younger son... Wonderful understanding of the principles of the plan of salvation by God, the doctrines, the truths of salvation. The older son, wrong and angry and murderously angry in Luke 15. Planning, in fact, he comes. He won't go inside because he has come with his forces. And he intends, it's implied as you study the tradition and the history of the, of the, of the Semitic cultures, of the Middle East cultures, everyone that was listening to that story knew that the younger son had come to kill, not just, I'm sorry, the older son had come not to just 
uh, kill the younger son, but he was also intending to kill the father. And I've explained that a lot in the past. I'll probably hit it again in the coming weeks. What happens? What does a father do? He takes the best garment, the choice garment, the choice tunic, the choice robe, and he places it on the younger son at Luke 15, 22. And the older son said, I kill him. Exactly like what? Jacob and Esau. I submit exactly like Cain and Abel. Sons, 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 right? The choice garment. I have the killing of the fatted calf. The older son says, you have killed the fatted calf for him. What's the fatted calf in the story? It's the blessing. It's called the blessing of the fatted calf. The older son again claims he never broke a single commandment. He never... Uh, never did anything wrong. So it's all there again. And Jesus Christ, God Himself telling the story. He's given it to us in the New Testament. It's the complement to Genesis 4 and to Genesis 20, chapters 25 through 33. The God-man, the angel of the Lord, the one who comes to Jacob, who stands in the way of Moses, who stood opposite of Joshua, is explaining these two sons to us. The truths of the garment, the choice robe, the blessing of the fatted calf, so obviously Cain sought what the older brother of Luke 15, 11 through 32 sought. I'm going to submit next week that the motives are the same. He killed Abel for the same reason the older son intends to kill the younger son in Luke 15. And yes, again, I said that correctly. Christ left that unsaid, but the Pharisees knew while they're sitting there listening to Christ, they recognize that Christ is in the role of the Father. That the younger son is in the role of the Gentiles. The older son is in the role of the uh, representing the Pharisees. And they knew the Pharisees did while they're listening to this, that their whole plan is to kill the father. And boy, if they could kill the younger son, they would too. Let them die. Pharisees were murderers planning to kill and to keep on killing. And what did they have, by the way? What were they all wearing? They had the garments, baby. You put all those pieces together, you're going to full picture. And next week we're going to add Jacob, Moses, and Joshua and get that worked in. So it's now time for the holy musicians to come forward. And, of course, those of you on the Internet, they march uh, in unison and they uh, have a rhythmic kind of element to it. And it's very professional. They're all in uniforms. Very nice robes they're in. Beautiful garments. Yeah. And please don't ever visit us here, whatever you do. And let's rise and be dismissed.